Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today. Thank you very much for taking time to be with us as we tackle another important issue in the world of broadband. Uh, we're here to provide useful information and insights to help um, communities, uh, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. Today's topic, I think, is one that you'll, many of you will find both interesting and also enlightening. Um, anyone who's followed the developments with the Broadband Stimulus Program and, and other major projects as they've been announced undoubtedly know that somewhere in the, in the, in the promotions about these projects and so forth, um, libraries are always on that list of, of target anchor tenants. You know, it's sort of like uh, you always get the feeling that the libraries are kind of like this checklist item. You know, local governments, check. Hospitals, check. Libraries, check. Okay, we got everything we need. Now we can issue a press release, and this is what we're doing with broadband. And they they sort of group the libraries into that list. But, you know, in reality, the libraries, I think, should be more front and center as a major strategic element of whatever plan that you're going to have for broadband, whether we're talking infrastructure projects, uh, computing centers, uh, broadband adoption campaigns. And so today, uh, our guest to come in and, and, and enlighten us is Don Means, who is the founder and CEO of Digital Village Associates. Uh, Don and his company are spearheading a national Fiber to the Library initiative, where the goal is to bring 100 megabit per second internet connections to all of the 16,500 public libraries uh, in the U.S. by 2012. And so, Don, I want to thank you for being our guest today. Yes, thank you for having me. And I just want to jump right in because there's a lot to cover. So, 100 megabits for over 16,000 public libraries. Uh, I say one, that's that's pretty ambitious. But then also, why are you attempting to do this? What's the, what's the driving force behind this initiative? Uh, well, thank you, Craig, really, for uh, giving me this opportunity to uh, talk with you about these issues that you and I have discussed uh, for years. Uh, the Fiber to the Library campaign grew out of our work over the last 15 years in what we call community technology policy. Since the advent of the web, uh, it's been clear that this is uh, a fundamental uh, change in uh, technology and basically provided uh, access to technology for anybody because of its multimedia interactive nature. And so uh, that started out as uh, how can communities develop strategies to use this this technology to, to build themselves, to make themselves stronger, as opposed to sort of the television effect of isolating individuals uh, in those communities. We've seen a, a long history of, of uh, breakdown in community organizations uh, since the advent of television, and so it was our idea that uh, that there must be ways to use this uh, incredibly facile communications technology to build community. That uh, led to, well, the library, the public library. Like most things, at least 
that I've been looking for in my life, I've usually found them right under my nose, and the library is exactly an example of that, Mm -hmm. where so many of these issues uh, converge. And uh, it's a natural community technology hub. It's historically an information hub, information technology, before uh, electronic communications. You know, the book itself is information technology. Right. So uh, that's kind of how that came up. Now, this has all been, throughout these years, Digital Village Associates. Has that been the, sort of the company that has been the, the 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 platform for all of this work? Since uh, 94. We, f- we founded it in 94, just at the arrival of the web. Uh, we're located in, in uh, Marin County, actually in Sausalito. And in 94, uh, maybe some of the listeners can remember, this was the 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 dawn of multimedia, at least in its uh, uh, computer form, and CD-ROMs had uh, arrived in, as standard equipment in PCs, and there was an explosion of of titles on CD-ROMs that were being published, and mm-hmm. Marin County was a a center for that. Uh, two major distributors were combining to outship Microsoft in units per month. And Marin, as then the home of Lucas, was also the home of a lot of independent developers and, and uh, uh, programmers, writers, the whole panoply of skills that you need to make those kinds of uh, products. And so Digital Village was a partnership that uh, we were called in by the Autodesk Foundation to help uh, broker and coordinate between these independents uh, in in the county and the College of Marin, which had surplus uh, space capacity that it wanted to utilize. So that was the, the public-private partnership that, that uh, was the origin of Digital Village and then became the, the basis for our, our consulting firm, Digital Village Associates. So has Digital Village Associates been a public-private partnership, or it has focused on public-private partnership issues? Uh, Digital Village, as a, as a generic name, was the name of the project, which was a public-private partnership with the college, the public entity, and that included uh, the transformation of the college library, which was way underutilized, into a, a new media center. Uh, wiring the campus with fiber, bringing in uh, computers, and uh, then helping the college develop a multimedia studies program, which uh, it was the first in California to offer a, a two-year associate degree, and then also utilizing underused office space for these companies. So it was a three-part project called Digital Village. Uh, we created a foundation. And then we also created a, a for-profit consulting company, and that has carried on and gone beyond uh, Marin in, in the work that I was describing earlier. Right, right, right. Okay, that makes sense. So, in in some respects, you have been at this effort of uh, helping enlighten basically communities to understand how to use various technologies. And if I'm hearing you right, the library's role sort of has become part of the mix 
over time as people started to realize the role that libraries were playing in general. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, that, that's fair. Uh, I think one of our skills is in being able to translate across the public and private uh, domains. You have uh, vast differences in, in uh, culture and uh, uh, tolerance for risk, uh, sense of time. These things make uh, public-private partnerships very difficult to actually pull off. And in the case of uh, the Digital Village Project, we had a public college partnering with, with these entrepreneurs. And so you can imagine the difference in perspective when you have entrepreneurs willing to bet their house on an idea and mm -hmm. a college who would call an emergency board meeting if someone said something ugly about them in the newspaper. Just very different notions of what constituted uh, risk. And uh, so that translates into different vocabularies. It's, and so it, it, it creates a, uh, a big challenge of interpretation, translation, and mediation. And that's an area we've been you know, working in and have developed some skill with. Interesting. So one thing about libraries, I think maybe people don't know, it's it's not just the public library building down the street. I mean, it's it's there are many types of libraries, right, within a uh, community? Sure. Uh, libraries fall typically into four categories, school, public, academic, and special. And the public library... Uh, uh, well, it's the one that's open. That's the it's actually the only one that's open to everybody. Now that said, uh, uh, college and public college and, and public university libraries are also typically open to the public and in part act as a an open facility where anyone can go in, pull a book off the shelf, sit down, read the newspaper, or even uh, log in to the internet which is extremely common. Mm -hmm. uh, public libraries, this is their, this is their uh, basic uh, business, is being open to, to anyone. Mm -hmm. And roughly uh, a couple of interesting stats that, that uh, roughly two-thirds of the whole population have library cards or, or active members of, of public libraries. Mm -hmm. I would have been shocked you know, if you told me half that number. Uh, because I think uh, libraries, while they're generally beloved, they're also uh, generally overlooked, especially by technologists who tend to ask the question, you know, what's the point? I've got the Library of Congress in my pocket. I can one-click <laughs> at Amazon. You know, it, maybe it's a nice reading room, I guess, if I need it, but I don't right. really get it. So uh, libraries, like, you know, almost every institution, uh, public and private, has been under pressure to accommodate the massive changes that the technology tsunami, if you may, uh, uh, has presented. And right. Now, let me just interrupt you one quick second. Now, do you say, you say there's public school libraries, college and university libraries? What's the fourth fourth category? Special special libraries. It's a it's a kind of a catch-all for ah, okay. uh, uh, corporate libraries, uh, special function libraries. Uh, museum libraries, it's just, you know, kind of everything else that's not school, public, or academic. Right, okay. 
So right, so it'd be like in Oakland. We I don't know if it still exists, but there was like a business library, and it was specifically geared toward the needs of small businesses that tried that that, that would need information on a variety of things. But their staff was trained at how to help small business folks find information they needed. So I'm assuming right. that's the specialized library. Okay. That's so that's one example. But corporate librarians are are also on the rise, as you can uh, easily understand the challenges of of uh, categorizing, indexing, archiving a whole range of uh, corporate information. And librarians are information scientists. That's their, that's their degree and professional training. So is it basically companies taking research inside is the reason for, the, for having these librarians? Uh, large large uh, enterprises uh, generate an enormous amount of uh, information. And it's not just a matter of sort of data management, but it's the level up from that uh, that we refer to as information that, that needs to be, uh, as I say, indexed, categorized, and made accessible in a variety of ways. Ah, okay, I see. So there's a, there's a, there's a career path there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so this, is, this pulls a lot of people that are, that, uh, are getting into the, the profession into uh, uh, jobs that are not related to the public. Huh. That is that's interesting. Now, to not lose track of the thread that you started before, I didn't mean to interrupt. But I want to just clarify the, yeah. no, the that's, categories. That's good. But you mentioned that two thirds of the population has library cards, library and we're referring cards. we're referring to the public library, right? Yeah, the public library, exactly. And uh, also related to internet access, that uh, a recent study from the University of Washington uh, identified that nearly one in three adults, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 15 and up, accesses the Internet at a library. One in three, that's nearly 80 million people, uh, 15 and above. And this is a huge number. Uh, it's more people, you know, and, and roughly three-fourths of those people have Internet access at home, broadband at home. Wait, so how many have access about, at home? They have it at home. Huh. Uh, this is not the number of people that have no other uh, access. Those That's a significant population that depend entirely on the library for internet access, but this is something different. This is, uh, you know, three times as many uh, people that access the internet or the library for a variety of reasons. Maybe the connection is faster. Maybe it's quieter. Maybe, you know, it's just away from their... Uh, home environment or their office environment. Maybe they're traveling, and it's a place to stop by and and get uh, access without having to buy a cup of coffee. So libraries are really woven, I think, then much much more into the internet fabric, if you will, than people are probably aware of. Because I'd when you listen much to more so. right, because when you listen to stories, you know, read stories in the news and everything, you know, it's always libraries where people go who don't have internet access at all. But and I think the assumption then would be you can correct me if I'm wrong is that well the average person that has a computer why would they ever go to a library? Well, there are and a bunch then, of answers to that, and I I, I tried to identify some, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, you know there are a lot of reasons, and the fact that libraries are are free and open, and are completely flexible in in how people utilize uh, uh, access to the internet. It very much mirrors, I would say, uh, home and office use, which is kind of anything anybody wants to do. Uh, 
Right. That's very different from our other institutions, like schools, where they have specific missions to uh, uh, accomplish education objectives, uh, universities or or any institution that has a specific uh, uh, orientation. Uh, libraries are unique in the fact that they're uh, entirely open to whatever any anybody wants to do. Uh-huh. We were we we've been uh, looking to make sort of value uh, propositions for you know community markets and and for library access, for example, uh, because I think this is you know their libraries like every public institution are, are struggling for funding these days. Mm-hmm. But uh, just to put a, a value on that that access to the internet, let's just say ten dollars per person per year. I mean, that's what you know we pay for an hour in the airport or, or a day in a hotel for one year for one person. And I, I would include homeless people that have don't even have a home. It's probably worth a lot more than that to the people using it there. But let's just use ten dollars as a as a reference point. Times eighty million is eight hundred million dollars in value that is just being delivered free. It's funded, of course, by taxes, but it is provided, and that's clearly a minimum uh, value. But that number, $800 million, is uh, what we uh, project would be the the cost to accomplish the entire fiber to the library goal. That's enough money to deliver fiber to every library or next to every library. Some are just so far out. but fiber to every library, gear, network, and some equipment to go with that, and staff training for all 16,000-plus uh, uh, public library facilities. And, that, and that, that, could, that's the correlation between that value and, and what's needed to accomplish that goal. Uh-huh. And you could also build wireless on top of that somewhere within that same budget too, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, this is... Uh, this is part of the library's dilemma right now is that they have different kinds of uh, connections and 90-plus percent have broadband today of one sort or another. large number of those are T1s, which, uh, as most people know, is a 1.5 megabit connection. And often and there's a big range of what they can cost, but they can easily cost uh, $700, $800 a month. Uh, it's just a quirk of, uh, you know, technology legacy, and it also relates to uh, E-rate, and, and which subsidizes connectivity for libraries and schools, which mm-hmm. there's been some changes in, if you'd like to talk about that, in the last year, uh, and, and all timing over the last couple of years of changes and general broadband policy in the, across the country. Well, you know, actually what I would like to talk about in terms of the last year or last couple of years is how has library uh, as a computing and an Internet access resource within a community, how has it changed both in terms of, you know, funding, but also, you know, has it changed how librarians work with people? Has it changed, you know, the kinds of equipment that they have? I mean, what has been the evolution of the library as a computing slash internet hub in communities over the last two years? Well, it is changing. And, uh, you know, I think we just look at the numbers and and uh, we can see that it has uh, become a, a critical resource at any level of uh, community, state, nationwide that you want to uh, uh, ascribe that to. Uh, the 
the the stimulus program, the the uh, broadband technologies opportunity program, BTOP, mm-hmm. and then the corollary uh, uh, BIP program under the Department of Agriculture's uh, Rural Utilities Service, uh, allocated uh, uh, roughly eight billion dollars to stimulate uh, broadband. That was just mm-hmm. kind of the way it, it started out. We had been uh, advocating fiber to the library since we launched it four years ago uh, in uh, co-sponsorship with the American Library Association, the Fiber of the Home Council, with support from the FCC and a number of others, saying that that connecting all 16,500 public libraries with next-generation broadband, if you will, is the most economical, most expedient, and most equitable way to deliver uh, next-generation broadband into every community. And mm-hmm. not just into the community, it's accessible. It would be within a, you know, quote, mile of every person. And that that is, uh, you know, that's what we've been proposing as a spearhead deployment strategy. So that when the uh, the new administration came in, talking about infrastructure generally, talking about broadband in particular, uh, we, you know, tried every way possible to remake that case, uh, high and low, and with everybody around. Microsoft picked up uh, the uh, the idea of the, you know, this so-called community anchor institution, which is a term that has sort of solidified over the last couple of years. But uh, it, it, uh, Microsoft suggested that since there was only, you know, seven or eight billion dollars available in the stimulus program, that wouldn't do very much in the, in actually deploying whole community uh, broadband, which is the normal way of these kinds of things is to select the best uh, proposals, fund them, they become then models for repl- replication and uh, uh, reproduction over a period of time. Uh, Microsoft made the point that, that uh, that's that that wouldn't go very far that way, but instead it would be just about as, as much as we required to connect all the the libraries, the schools, and the health facilities, and that would that would be a much better investment of that money than trying to to do some best practice communities. Uh, and I I completely agree with that. The the problem with uh, uh, treating uh, communities as models is that communities are unique and. Uh, from each other, their unique configuration of, of density and topology and socioeconomics, not to mention whatever the public policy priorities are of a particular community. All that to say that that uh, it is definitely a not a one-size-fits-all and that each community uh, represents a unique configuration and, and a unique solution, whatever business model and technology may be appropriate for them. That was the the, the telestructure initiative that we had uh, uh, developed into out of our original Digital Village project prior to the Fiber Library. So uh, the Microsoft proposal then led to the formation of the Schools, Health, and Libraries Broadband Coalition. These so-called community anchor institutions are the ones that are prioritized under the Universal Service Fund. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as such, uh, through the uh, and and so that coalition that started off with Microsoft uh, uh, support and then Gates 
Foundation came in, supported, and then recently the Knight Foundation has also come in to support that coalition, uh, which has been making the case for these community anchor institutions to be prioritized for connectivity. And so the grant process really evolved from that that first idea of picking a few kind of community winners into these so-called uh, middle mile uh, networks, infrastructure, to connect community anchor institutions. And we totally subscribe to that, and, uh, and our founders, co-founders of the Shelby uh, Coalition, SHLB, and uh, the, so that the NTIA grants, specifically, those are the ones from the Department of Commerce, uh, s roughly invested uh, two to three billion dollars in these open middle mile uh, infrastructure projects. I think uh, oh, well over a hundred of these were were uh, granted and are being deployed now. And this uh, this idea is that uh, by connecting libraries and schools and other community facilities with uh, uh, fast broadband connection, you provide uh, not only services to priority institutions, priority populations being served by those institutions, but you also provide an uh, a interconnect point for last mile providers, the, the providers that would want to serve homes and offices. And the thinking is that they're that uh, not having have been closer into the uh, the neighborhoods where these last mile solutions would go whether they're wired or wireless, uh, would uh, have their cost, their capital requirements reduced uh, by already being closer the, through this uh, open middle mile. Mm -hmm. uh, how that all works out is, uh, you know, remains to be seen, and whether or not that uh, really does stimulate last-mile investment, whether public or private, is, uh, is a very big question. But we are, the case we made, and which was really the case that I think Microsoft made in the first place, is that you can justify that investment just for uh, the service that's provided to those institutions. And if you mm -hmm. count schools and libraries together, you're really reaching half of the total population with the Internet. You're, the Internet mm -hmm. is serving those institutions that serve half the populations of the country. And... Uh, uh, and, and it's really more than that because you could say if two-thirds of the people uh, just have library cards that those libraries need the Internet to deliver services uh, that may not be Internet access itself. Right, it's right. It's interesting that the libraries, and the last point on this, uh, that uh, uh, the, the libraries are increasing their uh, speed of connectivity and they're increasing the number of workstations that are in the libraries for people to come in and use. These usually require you to be a member of that library or to get a guest guest pass. But what we're seeing now is that the number of portable walk-in devices, the phones and the tablets and so forth, and the portable computers, often exceed the number of fixed workstations in a particular library, creating even more demand on those connections. So they can be pretty slow. Uh, I've walked into libraries, you know, that are supposed to have a great reputation in cities for connectivity and tested my individual connection and it you know often they're running at or below 100 kilobytes kilobits per second mm -hmm. so there's a long way to go and yet uh i think that we will get to about uh 40% uh fiber deployment as a result of the uh of the btop and the bip uh programs now let's 
ask, I have a sort of a practical operational uh, question. So you've got the uh, Fiber to the Library initiative, but isn't this a particularly challenging project in that you're really looking at the three legs or stools of the whole broadband stimulus program. I mean, there's an infrastructure element of this goal. There's a computing center element. And then there's the driving broadband adoption element. And if you're saying that libraries are a key part of the strategy, in essence, they're a key part of all three of those uh, uh, elements of the, you know, call it the, the stimulus strategy. Um, does this become difficult to, to, to manage and also keep your sanity if you're trying to, you know, make sure that you touch all three of these as you go or as the initiative moves along? Well, we have focused on the connectivity piece, but you're exactly right that these they, these are three elements of the stimulus program uh, and uh, uh, adoption and public computing centers uh, being being also funded. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the we see the, the the public library as the quintessential community anchor institution. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uniquely open to absolutely anybody, and I mean, you don't you're you're not you're not even asked a question when you walk into a library. They don't even ask you if they can help you, but they're ready to help you answer any question really any question that you might come up with. So they've, they're evolving quickly, and I think the advent of, uh, finally, the advent of e-books that we've seen explode over the last two years has accelerated the pressure on libraries to reinvent themselves mm-hmm. in a digital age. And so th- since uh, their libraries can really be anything that their communities want, to, want them to be, uh, they have... Uh, they have tremendous latitude in the kinds of services that they can provide. Um, so that's what they're looking at right now. Our uh, our focus for the Fiber to the Library campaign uh, is we're just moving into what we call Phase 2, expands the connectivity emphasis to include equipment and gear as well as uh, professional development, really with all of those things being being necessary. Uh, for the equipment part, we think that uh, that communities should understand the value that their libraries are providing to their to the to them individually and to the community as a whole, and uh, are encouraging library foundations and friends to uh, start fundraising projects for library technology budgets for e-books, for e-readers and tablets and very popular consumer uh, technology that now uh, really everyone can pretty much understand, or the great majority of people understand, and a huge minority of the population have adopted. And that this is a way to help uh, the library remain relevant. There's a whole area of discussion uh, related to e-media and how that business model is working out, just looking at e-books, you can see how uh, complex it is and how dynamic it is when models for selling ebooks are uh, being, you know, changed each day. Amazon has kind of led the way with its Kindle uh, uh, reader and then its Kindle software, and it also as a publisher of uh, of uh, a distributor of ebooks. 
And so uh, what is the right business model? How do we treat these things? We can't really, you know, sell them or give them away like we can print books, but what mm-hmm. can we do with them? We really are buying a, uh, a right to access them. We don't really buy them, but we never bought the content even when it was in print form. But because right, we were you were always a borrower. Object, <laughs> but, but we bought the object of the book that the intellectual property was embedded in, and we had an object that we could transfer. There's no, there's no medium anymore uh, when, it, when it's completely digital for that kind of, those kinds of transactions uh, to occur. Uh, libraries do offer e-books. You can check out e-books at libraries. And uh, Amazon now is partnering with the primary provider of e-books to libraries, a company called Overdrive, mm-hmm. to allow that to, to uh, happen through their, uh, through their Kindle vehicle. The, the question that's kind of on all the librarians' minds right now and, and should be on the minds of a lot of the population is what is the appropriate shared public use license, the, the kind of license that librarians, libraries obtain now for this digital media and to be shared under a limited uh, license. Currently, they, uh, they mimic the, the print uh, model where a library or a library consortium will uh, acquire rights to X copies of a, of a work uh, and X copies, let's say five uh, simultaneous use copies of, a, of, a, of an e-book. And then, like with the print books, as people uh, complete their uh, checkout period of you know two or three weeks, they self-erase. An email goes out to the next person waiting for that book that is available. They can download it and read it, and so on. Uh, these are these are rapidly shifting models, and so there's a there's a big sort of public common good question of of what is the appropriate type of license for this shared public use that doesn't uh, uh, break down the, the, the market for uh, individual licenses and does reward uh, the creators of uh, intellectual property. So that's mm-hmm. a very interesting dynamic that's going on right now. Let me ask a question about uh, sort of a little future gazing. What does success look like? Not that there are the um you know the infrastructure is in place you have x number of uh computers and so forth i mean what's the impact you've you've done all this you've achieved this these goals that you're looking at uh achieving what does success look like for the average then constituent the, this local business the local individual well it's a great question uh craig the the the, the thing that brought the library to our attention in the first place was that it it sits right at the heart of the community, and that the, we're all in a uh, a moment of fundamental transformation. This technology mm-hmm. is just really changing the planet, changing society, changing communities, and the reinvention of our institutions, if not our communities, is what's upon us. You know, like it or not, and that. The project, if you will, of reimagining and reinventing the public library, we see as the ideal community project for the whole community to deal with these issues of, you know, access and intellectual property and privacy and security and and uh, uh, and a whole range of, of technology policies. 
we talk about you know the internet as a new utility, you know, a, a digital utility, an information utility. Well, that that's true. It is, and we uh, we have been advocating since we launched the Community Telestructure Initiative uh, six or seven years ago in partnership with TechNet, IEEE, EDUCAUSE, and some others, that since each community is a unique configuration of what the elements that I mentioned before, it owes itself uh, a, a formal strategy for, this, uh, for the deployment of this critical new infrastructure. And by whatever business model, whatever technology, but it needs to take that responsibility in the same way that it's taken responsibility for traditional infrastructure, you know, transportation, water, and power, and so on, for really the same reasons. But the uh, information infrastructure, the telecommunications infrastructure, is different than, say, electricity or, or water in that it becomes... Uh, a component to embed in traditional infrastructure as we go forward re-engineering our highways, our electrical grid, and so forth, more and more we will look for ways to save money, increase efficiency by embedding information communications technologies. So when you look at it from that sense, then, and, and you put it in the context of, of traditional infrastructure, which represents trillions and trillions of dollars of investment, uh, information or telecommunications infrastructure starts to look like a, you know, a meta infrastructure. It relates to all of them, and there couldn't be. There's hard to imagine a public policy area that could be more important than that. It's also very complex. You know, when you have interdependencies of these infrastructures, they become more complex and more vulnerable to accidental or even uh, intentional uh, disruptions. So that creates a big uh, learning challenge for local communities to mm -hmm. understand these implications where they may be very familiar with how to let out a contract for asphalt or, or a conduit, but uh, it gets much more complicated when you're talking about information technology, and yet that's what these communities are facing. Right. So the point, the point being that, uh, uh, that the project of reimagining and reinventing the public library, we think, is the most effective way for communities to learn about these issues and become knowledgeable enough to take them on as community or public policy. Okay. Now, it seems uh, from the stuff that you have been working on that came to uh, fruition last week that Kansas City, Kansas, has jumped into this initiative with both feet so what's going on there? You know, what have you guys been doing for the last couple of weeks? And then what was it that all kind of blossomed and came to a head last week? Well, uh, the as you know, Kansas City, uh, the Kansas cities, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, have been chosen mm -hmm. by Google uh, to deploy the, uh, the the fiber network that was announced, uh, I guess, a year and a half ago and uh, some 1,100 communities applied to be chosen by Google to deploy uh, gigabit speed fiber. Uh, so uh, as a result of our involvement with libraries, uh, when uh, the Kansas City, Kansas, was the first city announced, uh, I spoke with the uh, librarian there, and she invited me to come and, and talk and visit with her and 
and other members of the community, and then uh, that has uh, led to more conversations about uh, strategies. And the point that uh, we made to uh, to uh, uh, the librarians across uh, Kansas City metro area is that once this uh, capability is deployed, and they will be connecting all the schools and libraries are part of the agreement uh, with gigabit speeds, that once once the first library is connected with a gigabit speed, people are going to show up. They're going to be curious about this thing because everybody's hearing about it. Uh, and they, it, it must be something great because so many people are scrambling to get it, but a lot of people don't have any idea of what it means, and, and reasonably so. I mean, who really cares what a gigabit means uh, and, and in any abstract way? Uh, people don't understand bit rates. You can start to give them examples of how their movie can download faster and so on. But, uh, or you can show them diagrams comparing you know, straws to fire hoses. But that's still not meaningful. Uh, and what is meaningful is a hands-on experience. If, uh, if you think back in the mid and late 90s, a lot of people had their first experience of broadband at a library. And most of us were all, you know, with dial-up connections. And then uh, this thing called broadband started being deployed. It was just a word. Nobody really knew what it meant. They went to a library, and they experienced something like, uh, oh, maybe a, a streaming radio station from their, you know, hometown across country. And they go, wow, that's cool. I want that at home. <laughs> so, so libraries in that regard act as natural uh, demonstration sites where people can you know feel the burn as it were and it's that kind of experience that will uh, uh, really help uh, drive uh, demand for a service that you know by whatever name uh, and it'll be in terms of what it actually does for people and they can experience so uh, in making that point to the to the to the libraries and and the whole community in the in the Kansas City area to support mm -hmm. their libraries because that's a, just an obvious thing to expect and so prepare for it. But also we we see the the library as we say is the sort of heart of the community as a as near universal connector to every aspect or institution in the community, whether mm -hmm. it's educational or civic or cultural or even economic. Uh, half the people that access the internet at a library uh, do so for uh, work and job job related reasons. Right, but I think it was you and I we we talked at one point about how um, libraries could become test centers for new applications. People could either come in and create something, you know, just like maybe just an e-government app or whatever. But that it would be a place that people could not only touch it, but touch it in a way that they're actually using real applications. But this would be a planned process. It wouldn't just be sort of like you kind of open the doors and see who comes in and what they do, but there would be some planning behind creating that kind of a test bed, if you will. Was that you and did we, did we talked about sure, that idea? Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, I mean, uh, and both of those are valid. It is valid that people can, you know, just do anything they want. That's mm -hmm. that's a demand. That's a service to not put constraints on how people can uh, can uh, uh, use a resource. And generally, that's true with libraries. Uh, libraries, like schools, 
many of whom are subsidized under the under the E-rate program, um, which is some percentage of their of their connectivity uh, monthly costs are subsidized under the the Universal Service Funds E-rate program, and that can range anywhere from you know 10 to 90 percent. Uh, but there's a there's a catch that goes along with that, and that is uh, that uh, you must filter the uh, uh, the sites that uh, can be accessed through mm -hmm. that connection. And so a lot of libraries who are in you know desperate straits for funds turn down that money because uh, of this filtering requirement. And librarians are just adamant about uh, fighting any uh, impediments to free and open access and anything that smacks of censorship. So it's a testament to, to librarians that they're willing to turn down much-needed funds to uphold a principle, which is right. itself pretty unusual these days. And but I... on the point... <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I, they're they're not uh, you know that uh, well appreciated in how fierce librarians can get on certain principles. I mean, just think back to uh, uh, right after the Patriot Act was passed in uh, in uh, 2001, uh, librarians stood up, you know, right when that fervor was in us on us all, and told uh, you know the FBI that they were not going to allow them to come in and search the records of the of the materials that people were checking out. It was a it was a preemptive act of civil disobedience because they felt that the uh, the right to privacy of their patrons was just inviolable. Uh, you know, not not to say that they they wouldn't accommodate a, a court ordered uh, subpoena, but at the time the Patriot Act allowed the FBI just in his you know, investigative processes to uh, request access to records just as uh, just as a request without having a judge having uh, certified it uh, as a warrant. So that impressed me, you know, that the librarians can, when pressed on key principles, become, you know, fierce. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so that's a, another one. But on, on, your, uh, on your point about Specific applications, uh, yes, e-government is is one of the one of the big ones. Uh, you know, the history of of, uh, of e-government and software in general is that you start out automating paper processes. Makes sense, saves mm -hmm. money, it's more convenient. But as you go along, you start seeing things to automate that you can't even do with paper. And uh, so it's one thing for a for a company. Uh, to uh, to say, okay, we're going to create a service for people that are connected. It's a completely different matter for the public sector to uh, take that approach. And yet what we see is that every agency at every level of government is spawning these applications. And not only that, they don't look alike or work the same, so they're all over the place. And who, by the way, are these for? Okay, they're for people that are connected. So the public sector is in a little bit of a bind here because it's actually creating services, taxpayer-funded services, and at the local level, those are mainly sales tax-funded services uh, for uh, uh, that are that are really widening, and I'll say inadvertently widening the digital divide. So the only answer that 
any uh, government has to that is go to the public library and somebody will give you access and, and also will help you navigate this kind of daunting array of, of e-government applications. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a real bind that the public sector has it in, and, and I'm not a lawyer, but I think it is, uh, certainly rep- represents a, uh, uh, a liability on the public sector's part to not assure access to those public uh, services that e-government represents. Right. That's just okay. one part. It's a big part, but it's just one part. But libraries as laboratories, I think, gets more to your question. And the idea of libraries being natural places to test uh, equipment and software and, and services is ideal. And again, because libraries are completely flexible in what they do, they can set up any kind of facility or capability that their community wants. And mm-hmm. in Kansas City, uh, we uh, uh, are have kind of embraced that uh, through uh, uh, the just announced, and, and this is I think what you were alluding to was the K20 librarian, which mm-hmm. we rolled out last Thursday in Kansas City, Kansas. And the the the, the gist of that uh, initiative is just uh, just a microcosm of the big plan, the big. The fiber to the library initiative. It's it is part of the phase two of 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 doing outreach. But as I mentioned, we 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 contend that the library is a natural, near universal connector to the to every institution and aspect of a community, educational, cultural, civic, economic, and that in the context of the Google Fiber project, it's easy to imagine that everyone universities, hospitals, museums, public safety agencies are all thinking about how they're going to utilize a gigabit uh, connection. And so we're saying that the libraries are natural partners for anybody's public outreach uh, strategy because they can be a, a showcase for for those uh, kinds of uh, efforts. So the, 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 the first partnership that, uh, that we started related to the educational uh, uh, application. And so the K-20 librarian is a, uh, is a concept that our publicly funded educational institutions, our schools, our public libraries, our colleges, and our universities, uh, are completely uh, separated from each other and have really nothing to do with each other on a day-to-day basis. The universities publish publish entrance requirements, and there's a school of education maybe that's that's publishing papers on how schools should fix themselves, but there's no day-to-day interaction. And so the uh, the K-20 librarian, uh, uh, with one notable exception, the notable exception that lack of day-to-day interaction is at the network layer. And we've seen uh, the rise of state research and education networks, state and regional uh, networks, supplying uh, Internet connectivity to community anchor institutions. And currently some maybe 70,000 community anchor institutions, libraries, schools, public safety, public media, other kind of community organizations, are, are getting ISP services through some state or regional research and education network. So this gotcha. is this is one layer of relationship, 
that uh, exist, and that's the one that uh, the K-20 librarian builds on. So what we're saying is that these disjointed, uh, disconnected institutions constitute one whole system, a de facto system, if you will, and we would all be better off if these uh, institutions were more closely integrated in the delivery of their services, especially across distance using this infrastructure, which is just now coming into place. Right. So there are okay. a lot of efforts to do that, but very difficult to actually do. Right. So we we have about uh, seven, eight minutes left. The one thing I did want to touch on or highlight is from one of our original conversations, which is the community as market. And it's related to libraries because library is part of the whole, but it's a different way of looking at um you know how how we approach this broadband strategy and so forth. You want to kind of just reiterate the the four points of you know community as market. Uh, yes, uh, I mean we touched on that a little bit earlier. Uh, just to just to finish up on this K twenty uh, librarian uh, is that we on Thursday uh, a group in Kansas City, Kansas, the school, public, community college, academic librarians came together to create a consortium to look for applications and resources that could be created or supported by that consortium. And we see these librarians as a natural connective tissue of a new uh, national education continuum. And so that's really what started last Thursday. We're very excited about that, and we're working with Internet2 on a national campaign that the uh, KCK uh, project was the initiative of. Uh, but that fits into the, you know, into the community as market idea, uh, uh, and um, the 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 community as market idea really came from first generation broadband, where uh, where I live, uh, and we were doing the digital village project, and the broadband was being rolled out, but it wasn't being rolled out in Marin County. It's an affluent area, but it's also suburban rural. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. uh, kind of low density. And so it was happening in San Francisco and San Diego, but not in Marin, and yet we really understood it. We we knew we wanted it, and we knew what we could do with it because we were creating all these files and, and running them around. Uh, and so it was at that moment we realized, ah, we're, we're a market for this stuff, um, and probably we've been reduced to a single numerical value in a cell in a spreadsheet of, you know, the cable or the phone companies. And that's how they determine when and, and uh, how much to spend on infrastructure upgrades. So that was really the beginning of a mobilization as a second-tier market, that self-realization, really led to that notion. And community as market really was, uh, okay, how do we identify with ourselves in those regards? And because we have no large city in this county, the county itself as a whole has aggregated itself around a number of infrastructure projects. For example, it, it owns all the telephone poles and created a joint powers agreement to, uh, uh, to own all the telephone poles in the county, and also a joint agreement to negotiate the cable contract. So those were the historical things that sort of defined uh, the community and the market at the same time. And uh, so that was really what sort of launched the, the telestructure initiative and promoting the idea that communities should take responsibility for themselves as a market and not uh, you know, just wait to be served because the providers 
they don't want to see uh, uh, markets or customers as distinct. They want them all to be the same. Well, you know, they do that because there are economic benefits of kind of one size fits all. But it's not going to work for the great majority of, of communities. It won't meet their demands. So we say basically, you know, plan or be planned. You'll either be part of somebody else's plan or you're going to have a plan that uh, will drive the development of that market. And that has, uh, you know, with all the work that you've done and others over the past few years, we've seen a big rise in, in communities taking that kind of responsibility and developing plans, if not even taking on the role of provider. Right, because I think the essence of it is if we are a market and we spend X number of dollars, then we need to take those collected dollars and say, look, you know, we want a better deal, and either go out and find it, go out and build it, or some combination of, you know, any number of public-private partnership options. But, but ultimately, we're saying, you know, we are a group of folks spending money for a service, and that makes us a market by definition. So, as a market, we should define who we want to have come serve us. Right. Well, we have to do that in the context of who's serving us today. Right. You can't just drop drop this down out of space. You have to deal with the realities (laughs) of today, but that doesn't stop you from aspiring to uh, goals that, uh, as a community, as a market, that you want. Mm -hmm. We've developed a you know sort of a working uh, napkin level arithmetic uh, 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 model for valuation on a market. And that's using the uh, California PUC's number uh, average monthly expense per household of $200 for all telecom-related stuff, cell phone, Internet connection, TV, landline, and so forth. Uh, It's an easy number, I think, for most people to relate to. But if you just take that number uh, and kind of cut it in half and allow part of that for the the services, for for HBO, for VoIP, Internet access – and then the other half for infrastructure, you know, going through all these different channels of providers, but just in aggregate, that it constitutes the infrastructure. So $100 per month per household, let's just say $1,000 per year, round it down, per household. So you can apply that to any scale market. So Marin County, a uh, quarter of a million people, 100,000 households. So that's 100,000 times 1,000 is $100 million a year that this market is spending through all these different channels on supporting infrastructure. So uh, to get to your example, what uh, what would that community as a market build or buy if it could aggregate its uh, demand uh, for $100 million a year? Well, an awful lot. And it, right. it's not so much to to say, well, we should build it, but to ask, are we getting what we feel like we should? Is our market efficient enough? Is it delivering the kind of services that we think it should be for the kind of money we're spending? And we are spending it every day. Right. And people talk about, you know, there's not money. That's a ton of money. Right. And, for that and with that, I have, money, to, I have to interrupt. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to interrupt fine. because we got about a minute. And okay. I just want to um, take – Last couple of uh, details. So, number one, Don, thank you for coming in and sharing with us this vision of libraries as the center of you know broadband strategy. I think that's been very beneficial, and maybe we'll get you back here again and talk some more about this in the future. So, thank you for being here. And, Absolutely, uh, my pleasure, Craig. 
No worries. And Jay Ovatore, I want to thank who's always there helping out in the uh, in our chat room audience, keeping everybody sane and connected there. And all finally, our media sponsor, uh, media partners, GigaOM Broadband Communities Magazine, MediaWireless.com, and Community Broadband Networks. Everyone in our audience, thank you very, very much for um, listening and participating. And join us again uh, next week. We're going to be focusing, I believe, a lot more on Kansas City and what's happening with the Google project there. (laughs) Have a great day. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.